want to welcome you to Northridge Church. We're so glad you are with us. Welcome home. Welcome to the family. However, wherever you might be joining us, welcome those at Webster, those in Rochester, those who are engaging with us online. We're so glad you've chosen to take part of your day uh, to be with us. For those who don't know me, my name is Nate. I have the privilege of serving as our Webster campus pastor. Shout out to everybody in Webster this morning. Hope you guys are having an awesome morning so far. And before I jump into my message as well, just want to pause and also congratulate our lead pastor, Drew, and his wife, Ashley, on the birth of their baby boy, Baylor Lee Karshner. So thankful for a healthy uh, mom and a healthy baby boy. We're so excited for you guys and excited to see that Karshner family grow by one. But uh, today we kick off a new series, and I'm super excited to, to have the opportunity to launch this new series called Final Words, where we are going to be looking at the final words of Jesus as he hung on the cross. And each week, there's seven statements. We're going to look at one statement each week that's going to lead us right into Easter. And when we think of final words, I think we would all agree that when someone shares their final words, their final, in their final moments of life here on this earth, I think we recognize, man, that's a, that's a powerful moment. That's a powerful time for someone. Those words can provide healing for years and years of pain. They can also provide encouragement for generations to come. It's a powerful moment. In fact, I think of, I think of movies, and some of the most popular movies that are around today are movies where the main character had a moment in that movie where they died, but right before they died, they shared these words, and it was one of the pinnacle moments of the entire movie. You think of the movie Braveheart, right? That movie is known for one word, which is freedom, right? As William Wallace shouted that out before he died. You think of Toy Story 3, another very popular movie that uh, you guys already might know where I'm going with this. You think, remember Woody as Andy is driving off to college and leaving all the toys behind on the porch and he says, so long, partner. I cried like a baby in that moment in the movie. I'm sure you did as well. It was an incredibly powerful moment. You think of the movie Titanic. I've never seen that movie, but Drew's told me all about it. It's like one of his favorites. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, actually, I really haven't seen it, but I've, I read about Jack, you know, and Rose and their love story, right? They're floating around in the ocean together, and they realize that this piece of driftwood, I guess, isn't going to be strong enough to, to, to carry the weight of both of them. And so Jack lets go, and as he does, he just says, never let go of that promise, Rose. It was a powerful, a powerful moment. But then there's also the not-so-memorable or maybe even foolish final words that, that people say. And as I was thinking about this even more, it's really mostly men that have said these things. Final words like, I'm not an electrician, but hey, how hard could it be, right? That guy's no longer with us. That was probably his final words. Uh, or the guy who's, who, uh, who was asked by his wife, honey, do these jeans make me look fat? He gave the wrong answer. <laughs> He's no longer with us anymore. Final word. It wasn't even final words. It was final word. He got it wrong. He's not with us anymore. Or, uh, you know, I've never cut down a tree before. How hard could it be? Right? I got this. Um, or really, anytime you hear a guy just saying, hey, 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 watch this. Bad idea. Do not pass go. Final words. All right, you guys get the idea. They're powerful. They're memorable. They can be funny, um, good, or bad. And what we're going to do over these never, uh, next seven weeks is we're going to look at some serious final words of Jesus. These seven statements consist of three prayers. There's a promise. There's a piece of family business. 
and then there's a complaint and a declaration. And as Jesus was suffering on the cross, he uttered seven phrases that should be some of the most well-known and final words in all of the world. And today we're going to look at the first one. We're going to be in Luke 23. I'd love to invite you and encourage you to have Luke 23 in front of you as we work down through this text together today. And the context here is that Jesus is on the cross. And here's what the Bible says in verse 32. It says this, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. That's Jesus. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. So let's press pause here for a second and just um, review what has led Jesus up to this point. And if you remember, the Bible clearly has told us that for God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son. So God gave us his son, Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He completely fulfilled the will that God had for him and for his life. And when you study his stories and his life throughout the Gospels, it's completely amazing. This guy never did anything wrong. He loved with an unconditional type of love. He loved the ones that society rejected. He loved the ones that kind of, you know, the world and society had cast aside. And he came with this revolutionary against the grain message. In fact, he would even go uh, to and talk with the religious leaders and he would say, look, you are the guys who don't get it. You're the hypocrites. You're the one with the plank in your own eye and you're preaching religion, but yet you yourselves don't have a personal relationship with God. You don't know God. Jesus, his teaching, it changed lives. He performed miracle after miracle. He healed people. And even though he did everything right, he was betrayed by one of his own and he was taken before a mock trial had never done anything wrong. Even Pilate, who was the head of the trial, even said, I find no fault with this man. But yet he was falsely accused, tried and condemned, even though he was an innocent man. And they tortured him and they beat him. They took a crown of thorns and they, they drove it down into his head and forced him to remain conscious throughout all of this. Then they asked him to carry his cross and forced him to carry his cross to the point of exhaustion where he couldn't carry it anymore. Eventually, they flipped Jesus over onto that cross and they drove nails through his wrist. They drew, drew, uh, drove nails through his feet. And Jesus, who was in complete control the whole time, they lift up the cross. They suspended him between heaven and earth, never retaliated, never even spoke a word up until this uh, moment. At least we have no record of it according to the gospels. He's hanging there on the cross suffering for our sins when all of a sudden Jesus' lips start to move. Jesus begins to say something. Now, had I been there, I think I'd be leaning in like, what in the world is this guy about to say? Look at all that he's had to endure. Look at the way that these people have, have treated him. He said nothing up to this point, and now here he's getting ready to say something. What is he going to say? Is he going to curse the people that have done this to them? Is he going to condemn them? Is he going to cry out for physical relief? Like someone come help me, get me off of this cross? Well, Jesus didn't do anything like that. Jesus uttered the first of his final words when he said this in verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Absolutely incredible. Amazing that our suffering Savior, in the middle of his pain, he looks up to heaven and he prays, Father, forgive these people, for they don't even know what they are doing. Now, this, this short prayer of Jesus, 
the first of his final words uttered on the cross, they have a ton of significance and meaning for us today. And there's some things that I want us to catch about this statement. The first thought is this, is that in this prayer, Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Now, that's probably not the first thing you thought of when you read that prayer, but it's very important for us to understand and catch this. You see, 700 years before this event took place, Isaiah, the prophet, prophesied that this would actually take place and would one day happen. So imagine, 700 years before this event, these words are written in Isaiah 53, uh, verse 12. Speaking of Jesus, the coming Messiah, he poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Remember, a criminal on his right, a criminal on his left. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. That word intercession, that's just a big word that really means he prayed. And that's what Jesus did. He prayed, Father, forgive them. And with that prayer, Jesus fulfilled a 700-year-old prophecy. Utterly amazing. It's incredible. The second thought from this prayer that we see is this, that Jesus modeled the importance of prayer. Jesus was a person of prayer. He modeled this from early on in his ministry as he started out his ministry, throughout his ministry, he would escape and get away to pray to his heavenly father. And now here we see him ending his earthly ministry in prayer again. In fact, in his very first sermon, as Jesus was going, really going public with his ministry here on earth, he even taught about this on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verse 9. He said this, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He was a person of prayer, and he modeled that, and he's doing that here on the cross as well. But what's interesting is who he is praying for here on the cross. He's praying for the most unlikely of people. He's praying for his enemies, the ones who have tortured him and created all of this pain in his his life. And when we think about that, I hope that actually encourages you. It, It encourages you because I would think for many of us, we have people in our lives that we're like, man, they're too far from God. There's just, there's no way they're gonna get there. I don't, I don't know that they would ever come to a point in their life where they would trust in Jesus to place their faith and trust in him. But yet here on the cross, Jesus was praying for those who would, who would have been considered the furthest from him. So never ever give up praying for someone to come to know God in a personal way. Jesus modeled this. He lived this out, this importance of prayer in his life. As you think of your life, who, who would you say is the best, best earthly example of someone who modeled the importance of prayer in your life? Who would that person be? I know for me, when I think of that, I, I think of my grandma and grandpa councilman. I'm still blessed to have them in my life today, and they modeled and have modeled so well what it it means to be a person of prayer, and I had the chance to live with them for about four or five months um, right out of college before um, I I got married. I took a teaching job down in Pennsylvania. That's where they live, and so I lived in their basement for about four months, and the area that I would hang out in the basement was right underneath their living room, and every evening, they would sit down together on the couch and they would open up God's word, they would read God's word together, and then they would pray. And they would pray by name for every person in our family, with their kids, and then their grandkids, and then they had missionaries that they supported and prayed for regularly. Every night they would do that. They're still doing that to this day. A beautiful example of what a life of prayer, a life devoted to prayer um, looks like. And Jesus models this for us as well. He models the importance of prayer So he fulfilled prophecy, modeled the importance of prayer, and then the third thing is Jesus revealed our greatest need. 
In this prayer, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Jesus is revealing our greatest need. He was revealing my greatest need, your greatest need. And what is that? It's forgiveness of sin. That's why he came, so that we could have life. That's why we just celebrated communion, and we do that on a regular basis to remind us of our greatest need that was met in Jesus on the cross, that we can experience forgiveness of our sin. But he also says something, though, that's interesting here. Maybe you caught it and you've been thinking about this, but he says, Father, forgive them for they don't, don't even know what they are doing. That's kind of an interesting statement. Like, what, what exactly is Jesus doing here? What does he mean by this this statement for they don't even know what they're doing. Does that mean Jesus just forgave everyone unilaterally without repentance, without faith? Did he just forgive the soldiers, the crowd, the angry mob, the religious leaders? Did he just forgive all of them? Well, I think another way we could say it is this, is that ignorance does not equal innocence. Ignorance does not equal innocence. They didn't know they needed forgiveness, but yet they still did. And this prayer of Jesus, of Father, forgive them, is really a window into the heart of Jesus to see his unmatched love and mercy that he has for all people, that he would desire for them to come to know who he is and why he came and why he did what he did on the cross for them. Even in his agony, Jesus' concern was for the forgiveness of sin, was for the forgiveness of his enemies, In this prayer, he's asking the Father, forgive the thieves that are on the cross next to me. He's asking the Father to forgive the Roman soldiers who had beat him and had put him on this cross. He's asking for the forgiveness of the angry mob that had called for his crucifixion. But it's important for us to note and understand that this prayer, Father, forgive them, does not mean everyone was forgiven unilaterally without repentance or faith. It does mean Jesus was willing and is willing to forgive them. In fact, that was a whole reason he was on the cross right in the first place. Um, And it shows the merciful, loving heart of God. The other thing I think Jesus is modeling is something that he taught on a regular basis and lived out throughout his life. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 43, Jesus taught this. He said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What's Jesus doing right here? Jesus, the persecuted, praying for his persecutors. It's incredible. Jesus didn't just teach stuff. He lived this stuff out, and we see him doing it here. And what's truly amazing about Jesus' statement is that he recognized his tormentors really didn't understand what they were doing. These Roman soldiers really didn't understand who Jesus was. They're Roman soldiers. And what do Roman soldiers do? Will you carry out the orders of your commanders? So the orders came down to crucify Jesus with these other criminals. How do we treat criminals? This is how we treat them. We beat them, we torture them, we put them on a cross. And uh, this guy must be deserving of that. And so we're gonna treat Jesus just like every other criminal. In fact, Paul, the apostle Paul alludes to this later in the New Testament when he writes this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse eight. He writes this, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We also see some indication that the angry mob, they didn't really fully understand who they were trying to destroy. In Acts 3, we actually see this, that the Jewish religious leaders that hated Jesus, they convinced the mob to say like, hey, we want to crucify Jesus. This guy, Barabbas, let him go. Let Barabbas go free. We, We want Jesus crucified him. So they rallied this mob around crucifying Jesus. Even the angry mob didn't fully understand what um, and who Jesus was. 
So I'm praying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus reveals his infinite love and mercy. He still loved them and would forgive them if only they would humble themselves and repent. And here's what's so amazing. As you study the events that take place around the cross and even like the month after, you actually begin to see this very prayer of Jesus answered. In the lives of many people, there was a Roman centurion that was at the foot of the cross. And when he saw the way that Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, surely this man was the son of God. That right there was an answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed that we're studying today. Father, forgive them for, we, for they don't know what they're doing. One of the two thieves we're going to learn ends up trusting in Jesus and seeing and understanding who Jesus is and spends paradise and eternity with him forever. That's an answer to the prayer that Jesus is praying today. A uh, member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus. Uh, most scholars believe that after the crucifixion and resurrection that Nicodemus publicly aligned himself with Christians, with Christ. That is an answer to the prayer that Jesus is praying here today. A little over a month after this, 3,000 people in Jerusalem got saved in one day. It was the start of the church. That was a, an answer to the prayer that Jesus is praying here today. On the cross, Jesus provided forgiveness for all those who would ever believe in him. He paid the penalty for the sins that we commit, even in our ignorance and even the ones that we commit deliberately. And even still today, every time you see someone place their faith and trust in Christ, when you see someone become a follower of Jesus, every time you see a baptism today, that is an answer to this prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross of Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. How powerful and amazing is that? So as you think of you know, these words, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they are doing. How do these words that were mentioned by Jesus some 2,000 years ago, how do they intersect with your life today and impact you today? Well, I think there's a ton of significance for each and every one of us today. And I think we see in his final words a powerful example for us to follow in our lives because in Jesus' response to the people that had wronged him and hurt him, we see an example that we can follow in our own lives. What are we to do? How do we respond when we are wronged and when people hurt us? Because we all experience that to one degree or another, where people have wronged us or people have hurt us. Well, the first thing I think we see and Jesus models for us is this, that we're to pray for those who hurt you. Pray for those who hurt you. And when I think about our church, three campuses, Rochester, Webster, and online, I got to believe that there are some hurting people out there today. There are people carrying just some massive burden and hurt. I'm, I'm sure we can all think of examples where people have wronged us or hurt us. Man, the pain in, in so many families today is just immense. It's incredible. And the relationships that should be the best are often the worst. The relationships where the least amount of pain should be experienced are oftentimes the relationships where the greatest amount of pain is experienced. There's so many ladies that hate men because of the way they've been treated. There's so many men that don't trust women because of the way that they've been treated. You have broken relationships between fathers and sons and daughters and moms and siblings. You have family members that have stolen from other family members. You have friends that have betrayed you and betrayed your trust and slandered your name and shared lies about you. Then you throw in substance abuse and alcohol abuse and man, you have some massive hurt and pain that people are carrying around today. 
So what do, you, what do you do when you've been hurt like that? What do you do when you've been wronged like that? What do you do when there's a relationship in your life that should be one of your closer ones and one of the best, but yet it's, often, it's also the one where the greatest amount of pain is experienced? What, what, do you, what do you do? Well, we do exactly what Jesus did. You pray. You pray for those who have hurt you. And you're to pray good things for those people, not bad things. Remember, Jesus told us to love our enemies and to pray for them. If you're anything like me, it's like, yeah, okay, God, I'll, I'll, I'll pray this person that's hurt me, but it's going to be, God, get them. God, sick them. Give them COVID or something bad. I don't know. Like, pay them back. God, I want revenge, right? When people have wronged me, it's so easy, so easy for me to elevate myself over that person. And man, I harbor and I carry all the ways that you have wronged me and I'm gonna hold this over your head. I'm gonna kind of control you or manipulate you. I want you to know how much I have had to suffer because of what you have done for me or done to me. I once heard the story of a guy who got uh, bitten by a dog and didn't think much of it in the moment and uh, went about his life as usual until he started bumping into some significant health issues. And so he ended up going to the doctor and the doctor told him like, man, hey, I'm so sorry, but it looks like that dog that bit you had rabies. You have, you have rabies, you're gonna die. I'm so sorry. If you would've come right away, I could've helped, but we're at the point now where there's just nothing I, I can do. I'm sorry. And obviously, the guy was like floored and, and just a wreck and oh my word, how do you even process what the doctor just shared with me? And after he came to, um, he immediately grabbed a, a pen and a sheet of paper and he just started to write down the names of people. And the doctor, after noticing this, was like, who, who are these people? Are these people you want to see? You know, and just express your gratitude and the ways they've impacted you in your life before you die. And the guy was like, no, 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 no. These are the people I'm going to bite. <laughs> these are the people I'm going to bite. Right, and that's a, that might be a silly story, but the reality is that's the way a lot of people live their lives today. Wounded, angry, bitter, full of unforgiveness. And what does that lead to? It just leads to hearts being harder and harder, and harder. You think about the context in which Jesus was raised. Think about this with me for a moment. So Jesus, um, he was a Jew, and he was born into a system under the Jewish law. Now, Jesus came, and he fulfilled that law, but he was raised in the Jewish judicial system, which was a very fair system. It was like, man, if you pluck my eye out, I pluck your eye out. If you knock my tooth out, I knock your tooth out. Jesus also grew up very near a Roman Greco world and culture. And the, the Romans were actually known for worshiping a God called the God uh, of revenge. And they were notorious for it. They were famous for it. If you did something to the Romans, they were going to find you and they were going to do 10 times to you what you did to them. This is the world and culture in which Jesus was raised in. But notice Jesus here hanging on the cross after all he has endured Born into an environment known as an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, a society of revenge, yet the whole time he was in control, never once did he speak a word of retaliation. Never once did he act in a way as he was trying to get back at those who were persecuting him. What did he do instead? The same thing he wants you and I to do to the people that have hurt us and wronged us. Pray. Pray for those who have hurt you. And when we do that, we will also find that my prayer, it may not change the one who hurt me, but it will always change me. When we pray for those who've hurt us in the way that Jesus tells us to, it always changes us because it, it shifts our focus from revenge and I want to get back and I want to harbor these things and I want to control the, the situation. 
No, instead, it allows all that to be with God. Trust God with all of that stuff. And instead of bitterness, anger, and rage, we instead can find peace, forgiveness, and hope. You see, I cannot pray God's blessing on someone else's life without God doing a significant work in my own heart and in my own life. I think another thing we can learn from Jesus' final words is this, that we should pray for restoration. Pray for those who have hurt you, but we should also pray for restoration. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, right? He wants that relationship to be made right again. He wants restoration. We're to pray for healing where there is a broken relationship. And if there is a broken relationship in your life, seek restoration. Don't delay, don't wait. Seek restoration today. This is a prayer that should lead to action. Because as you pray for that reconciliation, it's going to lead you to most likely have to seek or to grant forgiveness. Now, now what does forgiveness mean? There's a ton of misconceptions and myths out there around. Is forgiveness just like forgetting? Is forgiveness, a, is it a feeling? Well, biblical forgiveness, what it means is simply this. Forgiveness is canceling a debt. That's what it means to forgive. Yes, you've hurt me. Yes, you owe me something. And, and I could carry that debt and I could carry that weight, but you know what? I'm gonna forgive you. I'm gonna cancel that debt. I'm no longer going to hang on to that debt. Forgiveness is not a feeling. When God calls us to forgive, he is not commanding us to feel something. He is commanding us to do something. So what then is he commanding us to do? What does biblical forgiveness look like? Well, it's really three things. It's three commitments. And these aren't original with with me. They're from a book, Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, where he talks about what true biblical forgiveness is and what it looks like. And it's this, when we forgive someone to cancel a debt, we're making these three commitments. The first one is this, is that I won't bring this matter up to you. I've canceled that debt. I've forgiven you. I'm not gonna bring this up to you. I'm not gonna beat you over the head with this anymore. Try to leverage this in some way to manipulate you. It doesn't mean you can't talk about it with that person, but when you do, it's in a constructive, redemptive, restorative way. But I'm not gonna bring this matter up to you anymore. I've forgiven you. Number two, the commitment we make is I'm not gonna bring this matter up to others. I'm not gonna talk about this behind your back. I'm not gonna gossip. I'm not gonna spin this story so that I look better and you look worse. I'm not gonna bring this matter up to others. Again, it doesn't mean you can't talk with a trusted friend or a counselor, but it's gonna be for the purpose of restoration, it's gonna be constructive. The third commitment that we make, this is the hardest one, is this, I won't dwell on this myself. This is the hardest one. Notice I didn't say I won't think about it. That's impossible, you're gonna think about it. But the commitment we're making is I'm not gonna dwell on this myself. That when that thought does come, I'm gonna choose to, to lay it aside I'm not gonna dwell on it and just continually turn this over in my mind and think about the situation and the ways in which I've been hurt, which then lead you down roads and paths that may or not even be true. No, I won't dwell on this myself. That's what forgiveness means. That's what it looks like. It's to cancel a debt where we say, I'm not gonna bring this up to you or to others and I won't dwell on this myself. And I realize some of you right now, you might be saying like, okay, Nate, I hear you. That was a cute little outline. You just walked us through a good job. But dude, you don't understand, man, some of the the pain and the weight that I am carrying and how this person has hurt me. You you don't understand. And you are right. I do not understand. And, And I don't pretend to understand, nor will I ever fully, fully understand. And I'm terribly sorry you had to experience that pain. And what I can offer you, though, is Jesus that Jesus understands your pain 
in your hurt. You think of all the physical um, that Jesus had to endure from being beaten and crucified, but yet he also experienced relational betrayal as well. In his time of, of greatest need, he was betrayed by Judas, which led him to be on trial. When Jesus was on the cross, his closest followers, his disciples were like, yeah, I don't know who that guy is. You know, nope, sorry, I, 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 don't, I don't associate with him. Jesus has experienced pain and hurt. I may never understand your pain, but rest assured, Jesus understands. And a verse that has always helped me to have perspective in hard moments like this, where it's tough, we don't feel like we want to forgive. Paul writes this in Colossians 3.13. He says, this then is, um, this is how we are to forgive. He says, bear with each other, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive. And how do we do that? We forgive as the Lord forgave you. How do I forgive when I don't feel like it? Just like this. The Bible tells me to forgive as the Lord forgave me. And if, look, if you wrestle with the idea of forgiving someone or you're resistant to, to forgiving someone, I think you need to probe down deep into that and ask yourself this question, have you truly experienced Christ's forgiveness in your life? Because let me tell you this ugly fact that if you take all the wrongs that people have done against me, all of them, and you were to multiply it by 100, it does not even come close to the ways that I have sinned against God, but yet he freely forgives me. How do I forgive? We forgive as the Lord forgave us. So we should pray for restoration. That is what Jesus did. And that restoration should lead to us either needing to seek or to grant forgiveness. And maybe you're the one where you caused the pain. You caused the hurt. You need to go and ask and seek forgiveness from the person or the people that you have hurt. We need to seek restoration. So as you think of the, you know, this first of seven statements of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. How do they impact you today? How do they intersect with your life today? And maybe for some of you, it's recognize your greatest need. And that is forgiveness of sin. And maybe today you've realized why Jesus came and why he died on that cross so that your sins could be forgiven and you could experience hope in a relationship with Jesus. And if that is you, I would encourage you, let today be the day. Don't delay. Step into a relationship of following Jesus Christ. Maybe for some of you, there is hurt and there is a broken relationship. And your step is you just need to start pray, praying. You've kind of buried it away. You've tucked it away, trying to keep that, you know, in the closet. But you need to start praying for that person that has hurt you. You need to start praying for restoration. Maybe you even need to take the step of seeking to try to restore that relationship by seeking or granting forgiveness. These final words of Jesus, yes, they were mentioned some 2,000 years ago, but the reality is they are still just as powerful as they were 2,000 years ago, and they impact our lives just as powerfully as they did then, as they do now. And our hope is as we continue through this series, as we look at these statements, they will impact you in a powerful way that will change your life um, today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this example that, that we have of your love on display for us. And God, I, I pray that that would be something we see and understand, not, not just from an intellectual level, that it would be that, but much more than that, that it would be a personal relationship with you where we respond in thanksgiving 
and love and appreciation for what you have done for us, God, that we would all come to that point in our life where we've recognized the forgiveness that you have extended to us. And then as a result, that, that forgiveness would be expressed in our lives, in the people, in the hurt, in the pain that we all experience around us. May the truth of what you've done on the cross impact our, our lives. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.